I wound up with six figures worth of this little popcorn fart ophthalmic company that I, in the end, didn't really know much about, but I thought I was being smart by, you know, kind of balancing the portfolio and I was buying more of this and I was like, I got to buy more of that. And all of a sudden the bottom dropped out and it was like this PE company was just like, see you later. We're done with these guys. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to welcome my listeners from New York to that mission. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Tony Greer. Tony, are you ready to join the mission? Andrew, let's do it, man. I'm energized. <laughs> I told you my last redeeming feature is my radio voice. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> so let me introduce you to the audience. Tony began his career in the 1990s as a commodity trader at Goldman Sachs. That was interesting because I was a emerging markets, you know, equity guy at that time. He transitioned into equity sales after that for various firms over a period of about 15 years. And in the fateful November of 2016, Tony launched the Morning Navigator, a macro trading newsletter currently distributed to over 800 professionals worldwide. Tony, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Yeah, well, you know, since your audience, I heard you address directly the risk takers out there. So as far as they're concerned, I'm doing God's work on the morning navigator every morning. You know, one of my strengths, my superpower has been identified by one of my longstanding clients who is a portfolio manager. And he consistently sort of thanks me for coming up with a handful only of high conviction ideas per month in trading that I give an accountable, you know, technical, fundamental, sentimental, and kind of everything background on and kick the tires on and offer good risk reward and sort of hunting down trade ideas is what I like to do. I like to use, you know, my 30 plus years experience in front of the screens to help people understand where they should be looking in the morning when they wake up and are looking to you know, understand the investment world or put on a trade and be a day trader or, you know, figure out where they want to allocate their portfolio and their 401k, you know, at the turn of the year and things like that. So that's my strength. And that's what I've been trying to do consistently as I can for the last six plus years now. Mm. And I'm just curious, let's take it from a different angle. Who is the morning navigator newsletter not for? Like, who is somebody that's listening that should say, well, that's not really for me versus kind of who is it for? Who really benefits from this? Yeah, you know, it's people that have risk in the markets or, you know, investment capital to allocate, whether it's on a short term or long term basis are really clients are, have all been great clients of my service. And that has to do a lot with the fact that, Andrew, I am a I'm a really serious trend follower. You know, I have a uh, I have a really really involved spreadsheet that I spend a lot of time on the closes of every day, week, month, quarter, and year studying. And when you put together several years, you know, perhaps decades of that doing that diligence, 
you've got a really good mosaic of how the markets have moved versus each other over the last several decades. And so with that hindsight, I'm able to offer a little bit of potentially foresight and saying, you know, hey, I've seen this kind of setup before. It looks like these sectors might be really good to be in this year. And I've seen this setup before. Like my big call from 2022 was that rates were going to go higher, tech was going to get killed, and natural resources were going to explode. And that was going to be due to the inflation that was created by the Federal Reserve doubling their balance sheet in response to the illegal lockdowns. So I had that trade on, which worked you know, in spades, and tech went down and commodities rallied, and that was something I was really proud of. That's kind of one thing that I was you know, not to toot my own horn because you're as good as your next call and I still have to wake up tomorrow and make another call. But that's something that worked. And people really appreciated that I shook them up and said, listen, that technology that you've been sitting performing like a, you know, like a maestro in your account since you bought it, you're in for some tough times ahead. And people really appreciated that kind of heads up and some of the other trades that were correlated to it that worked out really nicely. So it's great when a plan comes together. I'm wrong perhaps as much as I'm right. But I, you know, with the experience of having to manage risk, put up a PL at the end of every month, quarter, year, perform like that, I've been able to, you know, create some strategies that are very tactical and remove a lot of the emotion from trading, if that's fair to say. And what is your universe? I mean, uh, is it sectors? Is it countries? Is it. You know, some people are, you know, all about individual stocks. I mean, where, where is, for the investor out there that, that's thinking, you know, about your service, where is the focus of your trades? Yeah, the best, you know, since I have really, really Navy SEAL experience as a commodity trader, and I've grown to understand the equity world really well from working in it for 20 years in varying capacities from running an international sales trading desk at Bank Hapalim for four years to, you know, running a three-man or four-man team that does, you know, 40, 50 million dollars in commissions over the course of a year, you know, in an unbelievable year. So I've had a lot of perspective in the equity markets. And I try to combine those two worlds to finding where I can have some tailwinds in terms of having sort of risk at my back, you know, and my money performing for me. So that's, I'm a really a natural, I call myself a natural resources based trade idea generator, you know, and I follow the, I'd follow the precious metals markets extremely closely. I follow the oil market like the back of my hand for 20 years now. Oil is probably the biggest, the market where I take the most risk every single year. It's one of the markets that I've gotten so comfortable with that. I can sleep with an enormous amount of risk on in the oil markets if I feel that I understand what's going on. And whereas in other markets, I can't do that at all. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just will not allow it, you know? So kind of that's where I, I swing my bat, but I, I do fairly well in the gold markets. Base metals, when they're offering opportunity are amazing to trade because they trend for years. And, you know, things like that are what I like to identify. And sometimes they start identifying the buds and the the green shoots of those moves because of the way that I study the markets. But a lot of times because of the way that I manage risk, I manage to keep guys in trend or keep my clients in trends for longer periods than I even thought possible myself sometimes. Mm. So maybe last thing in this kickoff session is just maybe you can give us an idea of like what's a, a trade or what's an opinion that you have, you know, here it is, the first day of February, 2024. 
It's an election year in the U.S. There's so many things going on. I mean, I haven't lived in the U.S. in 31 years, but when I look at what's happening there, it's like, to me, it's like a house on fire. And I'm just curious, like, what would be one idea that you got that you're talking to clients about? Andrew, a house on fire, you know, for two guys that are, you know, kind of, uh, you know, from the same generation is all too accurate. You know, I wake up and come down here every morning to my home office and I, I start off reading the headlines, you know, like this peeking through my finger because I'm afraid to see what the world is going to show me, especially about the United States of America where I live. So a trade idea that I am in the middle of and I couldn't be more excited about is I'm bullish stocks this year in a very serious way. And bullish stocks this year, basing that theory on, I think that a proper analog for this year, meaning, you know, a year from the past that this year might look like, to me is not the 07, 08 great financial crisis sell-off, and it's not the 2000 internet bubble sell-off. Right. That's what people on Twitter like to compare this year to. They're like, you know, tech stocks are exploding. Rates are about to head lower and rates headed lower when the dot com bubble burst and rates headed lower when we had the great financial crisis. And so this year, therefore, is going to be the same and rates are going to, you know, eventually go down and they're going to take the market with them. And so that logic to me can be disproven pretty easily by saying, in 2000, there was a real bubble, like an actual stock bubble, where when you went out into the bars at night, all you heard was stock tickers. And everybody was telling you how rich they were getting off of their own personal pet stock ticker. This is not that scenario, right? And then in 07, 08, you know, before the bubble burst, we were hearing about hairdressers in Las Vegas that owned eight properties on spec with no money down at 0% interest. You know, and you were like, wait a minute, that's not going to work forever. And those were the things that, you know, the Federal Reserve had to address those bubbles unwinding with lower rates, right? This is much more like 94, 95 to me, where in 94, the Federal Reserve had to raise rates from 3% to 6% in order to combat bubbling inflation and a really, really fast-growing economy that they had from keeping rates at 3% into the dot-com bubble, right? And in 94, when rates rose, the S&P was really, really volatile. And it would wound up down a percent and a half on the year, which reminds me of last year, where it was really volatile and only made that 20% comeback in Novi Dece, right? Or 15, 18% in Novi Dece. So anyway, it reminded me of that where now we're heading into a period that started on November 14th, where the stock market is saying, as long as inflation is not a risk to the bond market, the stock market is in great shape. So we're going to see rates be sideways to lower for several years. We're going to see the technology tailwinds of AI, of cryptocurrency implementation, of all kinds of cybersecurity, all of that is going to start kicking in. Now that we've got this inflation albatross behind us, because the Federal Reserve is not going to tolerate 9.5% headline inflation anymore. That was a fluke, right? They threw cold water on it. They raised rates from zero to 5.5%. They kneecapped the economy and they said, look, we got rid of the inflation, right? So they had to slow down the whole machine. And what's amazing. If you listen to, for example, the last IMF forecast, 
We are not falling into a recession. The soft landing has been achieved. Love them or not, central bankers did it again. And this is one of my axes to grind where I always see people throwing rocks at central bankers and, you know, just destroying their reputations and things like that. And you can do that to Jerome Powell if you want. But I think the guy has done an unbelievable job of landing this plane, right? He raised rates 500 basis points and then didn't cause a recession and actually did get inflation to go down. And the stock market now, like you said before, a very aptly point out is a forward looking market, right? We know how much it discounts the future. We are heading into an election year, and it sure looks like if we have free and fair elections, what might happen? And it looks like that's what the market might be betting on. Maybe mm. not all at once. Maybe there's going to be fits and starts, but it seems to me like the market wants to bet on a Trump administration too. And I tell you one thing, it all depends on the altitude that you start out from. But that presidency, if that happens, that's not bearish stocks. Right. Okay. That's my whole thesis on bullish stock. Sorry okay. it took so long. I didn't I have time to shorten it. I got it. I got it. I'm pretty bullish. You said you're bullish stocks, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm going since November fourteenth. Yeah. No, no, no. Bullish, bullish stocks. Okay. Just to say, I hope I didn't say bearish for a little bit. No, no, no. I just thought I, at I the last up. minute, I just thought you said that, but maybe not. Okay. So no, and I just stocks. wanted to say for yeah, that's and that's a call that I made on November 14th in my newsletter where I literally came out after CPI was released for October and I saw the market response that day. I sent a special note to my readers and said, everybody stop what you're doing and buy stocks mm. on November 14th. Because okay. this is what the market just sent a signal and I picked it up. Go ahead. That sounds good. And I uh, I know the listeners appreciate that. I'm gonna throw out my thesis on markets and the like. I'm outside of the US, so it's a little bit different perspective. But my perspective is probably similar that US stocks are probably going to fly this year, number one, because interest rates are coming down. And if we get any recessionary moves, then interest rates could come down very fast. In fact, I would predict that if we start to, things start to crumble a bit, we could see the Fed bringing interest rates back down you know, significantly. And I think that would fire up the market, number one. The second thing is that I think we're probably going to see escalations in war. And war is very powerful tool for getting reelected. And I think that we're going to see potential escalations there. And in the end, U.S. benefits from war. If you can create chaos around the world, and ultimately you're the safe haven. It allows you to have a safe haven status for a longer period. The third thing is that I don't think, I just think that the opponents of Donald Trump just will simply not allow him to win. And if that even comes down to assassination, I think it's not out of, it's not off the cards in my perspective. So though it may be that the market thinks that he's going to get there, I believe that the forces against him have much more power than he has against them. And the, the last part about the election aspect of it is that Biden won't be running for president from the Democrat party side. And I can't be sure, you know, nobody can be sure, but I would say the easiest shoe in for the Democrat Party is probably Gavin Newsom. There are some harder options for them, but 
I would say that's probably one of them. So all of those things come together. And I would argue that it's probably bullish for the US and maybe bearish the rest of the world. What do you think? Well, China is, you know, if you look at, you nailed it, you hit it right on the head, right? The Shanghai composite has completely collapsed, right? In the last several weeks. So why is that happening? We can come up with a number of reasons, right? They have a number of issues in China. They have, there's an economic slowdown, you know, that seems like there's all kinds of overextended issues, we can call it with China, just to summarize. And I'm not, I'm not a foreign specialist. Like I said before, Andrew, my wheelhouse is US stocks, US sectors. I don't feel the need to invest my capital outside the continent, quite honestly. So to get back to the original story is, I think that the market is going to take at face value, no matter what, right? At face value, it's going to take what's going on, right? Just like it takes the the economic data, it takes China's economic data, whatever the number is, that's what the market follows. And I don't, you know, I don't like to speculate, but whenever you hear somebody saying that that market is fake or those numbers are not real, it's like, look, man, there's a million people out there reacting to those numbers. So if you don't want to, you can go stand over there in the room and be upset at the numbers, but that's what the market reacts to. So anyway, I don't know how I got on yeah. that tangent, but well, that, I am bullish stocks alongside you and for a lot of the same reasons. It's a good point. And I think when you talk about your methodology and you talk about momentum and the likes, part of the key tenet of that is you can't ignore the market. You can't sit yeah. there and think that, well, I've got this great thesis and I'm going to bet it all on that thesis. I'm sorry, but your thesis may be wrong. Your thesis may be too early, you know, there's many reasons. And your job is to also protect client capital. Yeah. And Andrew, you know, that that story right there really lends itself to like a uh a story that directly relates to like my worst trade ever, right? Like which is the theme of the podcast. Yeah. And you know, I like to what you just said is the way that I became a winning trader from becoming a bad trader. So this is kind of like feeds into the same theme of what's my worst trade ever. My worst trades ever were, and this is kind of one of the things that I thought about before coming on the show tonight was my worst trades ever were all generated from the ideas that I had in my head that I <laughs> therefore invested in and then sat there like a smart ass and said, okay, Someday, eventually, the market is going to agree with my head because I'm so smart. And I thought of this is going to happen in the future, like I can read the F in future. Yeah. Right. And then once I threw that idea out the window and started studying what the hell is going on in the markets and letting that tell me, oh, well, if that's going on, then this is going to happen. Right. If this is going on, then I can bet you that that's going to happen. I'll tell you that because I've seen this before. Right. And that's become the, you know, sort of cheat code for my winning trade strategies, quite honestly. Yeah, I love the uh, the phrase that I heard many years ago is somebody said, I don't know who originated it, but I'm on the cutting edge of history, meaning I'm understanding what's happening right now, but I'm not relying too much on my predictive abilities because we know after many years in the market that you know nobody can really predict the future. So, well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it. And then I think we're ready to hear your story. All right. So during the, what I was at uh, Goldman Sachs in the 90s, I managed to catch the dot-com bubble pretty good, right? I was involved in tech stocks. I was like 
the reason that I was able to get there was because I was a massive consumer of music. And so as soon as I could buy, as soon as I could order stuff on Amazon and have records that I was dying to have, and I was making a little bit of money at that age, you know, 27, 28 years old with a really keen interest in music. When I realized that I could have like these old covers, albums, whatever I wanted delivered to my door in a couple of days, and that's how I could collect music. I just went berserk, right? And started, I finally had expendable income. I started investing in these things and I caught the dot-com bubble pretty good. But along those, during that period of time, I decided that I had a, you know, I was so smart that I had to round out my portfolio. Like I was learning by talking to other people. Like you can't just be long tech stocks. You got to be long some material stocks, some small cap stocks, some high risk, you know, lottery tickets. And so a friend of mine put a name in front of me called Franklin Ophthalmic. And it was like a 20, 30 cent stock. And he was like, listen, man, I got the story on these guys. This is going to be a, a nationwide chain. This is going to be where everybody goes and gets their eyes checked, gets glasses, baby. The whole these these PE funds are investing in it. You know, this is what it's got to be. So to make a long story short, Andrew, my portfolio grew in technology. And I'd look at this little Franklin Ophthalmic stock and be like, you know, we've got some room for some more of the lottery ticket, right? So let's <laughs> let's buy another two, 3,000 shares at 20 cents. Let's buy another five, you know, boom, boom. And I amassed a massive position in this thing because my technology stocks were growing, you know, to the sky at the moment. And I thought I was very smart for that, by the way, which turned out to be a mistake also, which is another story. So to make that Franklin Ophthalmic story short, I wound up with six figures worth of this little popcorn fart ophthalmic company that I, in the end, didn't really know much about, but I thought I was being smart by, you know, kind of balancing the portfolio and I was buying more of this and I was like, oh, I got to buy more of that. And all of a sudden the bottom dropped out and it was like this PE company was just like, see you later. We're done with these guys. And I was like, wait a minute, that was not my risk management. You know, that wasn't one of the options. And I looked at it later and I didn't realize it until my accountant cornered me on it that year. And he was like, well, what about this hundred grand or whatever of this stock. What happened to that? And I was like, oh, that's gone. <laughs> He's like, gone? Gone? <laughs> I was like, yeah, oh yeah, man, gone. Like that thing went to a penny and then went pink sheets. And I don't even think I could hit a bid unless it's an appointment that shows up to buy some. Like it is bankrupt. And I was just like, I just got rinsed. And, you know, thank God it was a, a sum of money that compared to what I had in technology, you know, wasn't killing me at the time, at the mm. time, notice. But just getting that lesson of like, just thinking that like, man, did I not think through the risk on this thing, right? And when you buy penny stocks, that's what you get, penny stocks, right? And they are a wing and a prayer. And no matter what, you know, one of the lessons should be consider what the total dollar value of the money is, no matter what percentage of your portfolio it is, because if it's gone, Holy smokes, is that like a much bigger offense than being down 10% on a trade or down 20% on one you couldn't get out of, right? Which happens to me sometimes. But that's as bad as it gets for me now after living through something going to a donut. And I could have bought myself a Corvette and a Harley Davidson with the money. So let's just do a, a wrap up of the lessons you mentioned about the size, you know, of the positioning. What other, how would you summarize the lessons? It was a blatant, you know, blatant youth mistake of thinking because this was a listed security 
And because I was buying it at 17 cents and it had all of this beautiful fundamental potential, what, you know, my risk in at that point in my head was 17 cents, right? Like, where's this thing going? Like, it's not going bankrupt. The stock market, this is 95, six, seven, eight. The stock market is like, you can't even touch it. It's so hot. Right. And you're like, well, this thing is going to catch fire eventually. And then all of a sudden, the PE company that thought the same thing and the stock wouldn't move and they changed management and they did this and they found all of a sudden there was one accounting issue. They were like, yeah, get this thing off the books. Like, take a 50% loss. They were like, dreamy, 50% loss it is. Like, get it off the books. And neither me nor like sort of the friends in the circuit that I knew that knew this stock that were investing in it even remotely saw that possibility. So it was literally just not understanding the nuts and bolts operation that I was investing a reasonable sum of money in. And that was just stupid on my part. And I've never done it again. Never done it again. Great. Let me maybe summarize, you know, what I took away. The the first thing is that, you know, this is really a position sizing issue in the sense that we all get excited about ideas and they can be, you know, reasonable ideas and sometimes not. But one of the key things is particularly with, well, it gets a little bit difficult if you say with new ideas, right? Some people bring in new ideas in their portfolio at a very low level, but that doesn't protect you from, you know, falling in love with a position, for instance, and then it goes against you. So I would say the first lesson from my perspective is it's all about position sizing. No matter how much you want to make this a big bed and you you see a, the Corvette or whatever, you know, in the, you know, you could have bought multiple Corvettes if it had done what you had thought it would done. Right. But, right. you know, position sizing is a huge one. I think the other thing is that I always say that we create, grow, and protect our wealth. Most people go into the stock market thinking they're creating wealth, but actually they're growing wealth. That's the way they should be looking at the stock market, in my opinion. We create wealth through our business, through our salaries, you know, by the gap between our salary and our, you know, spending, but we also create, you know, through our business. But the point is, is if you go into the stock market thinking you're going to create wealth, you're already setting yourself up to take on very risky bets and put big position sizes. And that's why I always focus on the stock market is for growing wealth, not for creating it. Anything you would add to that? Yeah, that's, I tell you, that's really, really good advice on the sort of, you know, to me that rhymes with the idea of getting rich slow, right? Like when I look at a stock market chart from the time, I would just call it when I was in high school, when I had a job and I had a couple of extra bucks that I could have done whatever I wanted with. And I'm not going to make the excuse that I didn't put it in the market then because I was, you know, not smart enough. But if somebody was telling me back then, like I kind of try to inflict on younger kids today, you should think about putting some of this money in the markets, you know, because over time that will grow for you. And I've always said, you know, if you've got a 20 year time horizon, I'm going to tell you what, you're going to have positive returns in the S&P because that's the way this thing is set up to work. So that's generally the idea that, you know, it's much easier, quite honestly, on your life if you just say, from the time you can, I'm going to put small amounts of money into this just index fund, index fund, index fund, and maybe a couple of different sectors. I totally agree with diversification. But starting early can be like, you know, as valuable as as anything if you can just be patient and be willing to get rich slow because it works. Yeah. Time is the pretty much the only surefire the only thing on your side right sometimes like not to interrupt sorry go ahead 
yeah, you know, like the stone songs go, you know, it's the only thing on your side in, in, in some trades, you know, and so that that's really important. And when you can have your money working for you slowly over time and you look back over a long period, you're like, wow, that was kind of easy lifting. Like, I wish I did more of that. Like, why didn't I do 5X that? I could have done 5X that. Yeah, it's I'd a have great, so much more money. But It's know. a great lesson for all the, the younger listeners and viewers because just this past weekend, I was teaching a, a course I do at university based upon my book, How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market, which is really, you know, it's the get rich slow concept to some extent and keep it simple concept. But- I always, you know, love to say, who's the youngest person in this room? And that youngest person was 25 years old. And I was like, and who's the oldest besides me? <laughs> and the oldest was, you know, 50, 55. And it's like, right there, you can see that that young person has such a major advantage over the 55-year-old because of time. And most people never really see that or take advantage of it. So I think it's a, it's a critical thing. I wanted to just go back in time. Let's go back in time to when you you know made this trade. And based upon what you learned from the story and what you continue to learn, what's one action you'd recommend to our listeners? You know that our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate. They they see that sexy shiny object. They see that seventeen cent number. They get excited. What is one thing that you would recommend that person who's in that position right now do? Yeah, I think that's something that comes right to mind is live to trade another day is the biggest mantra that I have. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, for the longest time, it was a post-it that I used to write on every year and put it on my screen until I got it tattooed to my brain. And now I don't need to post it anymore. But live to trade another day is, I think, why... At 55 years old, I'm able to have like, you know, the most virile and active participation level in the markets that I've ever had. Yeah. And that's only because I've made mistakes along the way. I've blown up accounts and I've learned the lesson the hard way of saying, oh, look what happens when you get, you know, big balls and decide that you want to make this money in a week or two. Or you start saying, wow, look how much money I made last month. If I make that 12 months in a row, that means I make X, Y, Z million dollars and nobody can touch me, right? And I'm just going to start swinging for that seat. Like that is like, you know, misguided type of mm -hmm. approach to this whole thing. And yeah. once, you know, you learn, you, you lose the money once or twice and you get shut down a couple of times and you say, okay, I swear to God, the next time I step foot in this market, I am going to make sure that I walk out the ring and not get carried out, yep. right? Because I want to live. I want to survive. I want to be in this. I want to know what the next opportunity is. Because over time, it's just like, you know, the, a good analogy for me is playing blackjack. And you know, I don't know if that's a big thing for you, but I could play blackjack in Las Vegas for five, six hours at a time. And always during that five or six hour period, there's like one little stretch where the dealer just keeps losing over and over and over again. And if you're astute enough to pick that up over that five-hour period, you can make a fortune looking for that opportunity. But the whole game, if sitting in Vegas with all the drinks and cigarettes and rock and roll music that they're playing, the game of the game is to bet $25 when there's nothing going on, <laughs> right? And stay alive to have another beer and to bet $25 again and stay alive for the next hour because then at some point you can put 2,500 up with the confidence that like, hey man, the odds are in my favor this time, right? I just got to split eights against your six, please take 2,500. 
put 5,000 up on the table if I can get it there, then at least the odds are in my favor, right? And when a trader gets that kind of thing at his back, he understands what it is. I was patient. I waited. I didn't chase the market. I let it come to me. I got in at a good price. I got out at a good price. I didn't let, I didn't have any emotion, no sweating. And you know, that's what a perfect, when it happens perfectly. And you mm. can replicate that from time to time, but you need to model. Yeah. All right. What's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Yeah. You know, I'm going to be an egregious best friend of Jared Dillian, a friend of mine who also writes a newsletter that compliments the navigator very well, but he just published a book called No Worries. And it just sounds like it might be well geared for your audience. I got to read a copy of it before it published. And my first takeaway after reading it, and Jared has got you know more wisdom about finance and his pinky than I've had in my entire life. And my first takeaway was, man, I wish I read this thing when I was 18. <laughs> then again, at 25, I wish I read it when I was 32. I wish I read it at 40. And I would have read it again at 50 just for fun because there's so much freaking wisdom in here. So, mm. you know, he talks about getting, you know, the three big ones right, which is, you know, your education, your home and your car in terms of personal finance. But it's a book about how to live a life without worrying about your personal finances and the wisdom and knowledge and guidance that are in it are just really, really good stuff for the everyday investor. And so I think it's a good thing to recommend to your clients. I've been buying copies and giving them to friends and they love them already. Great recommendations called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. And it's got a 4.9 out of 5 rating with 310 ratings, which is a pretty remarkable performance. So I'm going to be getting that and maybe we need to get Jared on the show. Huh? <laughs> oh yeah. We'll make that. I'll make that introduction for you. That's yeah. one that you need. He's one that you need to have on here for this topic. 100%. Yeah. Exciting. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Man, my number one goal for the next 12 months is to really immerse myself in my business. You know, that's one of the things, Andrew, that is an asset that I've grown to become very proud to have. And it is really an asset of personalities and people when I come down to it, right? My subscriber base and the people that I write to every day, the people that I talk to in my Slack channel every moment of every trading day, and the people whose portfolios I'm trying to help in my consulting business, those are my biggest assets. And I'm trying to figure out ways this year to get closer to them and to help mm -hmm. them more. And so if it's with a little more contact than just my note, and we're going to do a conference call with the whole subscriber base or whoever wants to listen once a quarter to get caught up. We're going to do things like that. And we're going to keep people more, more on top of what's going on in the markets real time. Because every time I you know, go through the extra effort, go above and beyond the call of duty and put something out and say, hey, you know, I know I didn't have a note plan tonight, but here's the reaction to the FOMC. This is what I think. The response is like you just bought somebody a pizza pie for happy hour, right? Mm. Everybody's like, man, that was huge. Really helpful. Thank you for taking the extra time. And so kind of putting in that extra time to the asset that I have is where I want to focus my, my energy this year. I think it'll get, I think it'll be an investment that's worth it in spades over the next five or 10. It's an investment for all of us to be making. That's a good inspiration for all of us. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Tony, I want to thank you again for joining that mission. And on behalf of A.E. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you 
alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, you know, I hope to help, you know, the same as you. I want to help as many people as I can. And reading The Navigator is something that, uh, you know, not to be a shameless plug, but I've been able to help people. And, you know, there are real-time reviews on my website. And so if you're interested in getting some help looking for trades and taking risks, that's what I do. Perfect. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And that is a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.